Well, we come back today to the Gospel of Matthew. I had a couple of weeks off in October. Uh, October's a month where we highlight our connection to the Pillar Network and have other pastors come in a couple of Sundays, and that was a blessing. And it's good now, though, to be back to Matthew. We'll be in Matthew now for the next several you fill in the blank. Maybe it'll be years. I don't know. We won't go that long. But we're here for the foreseeable future. Today we're in Matthew chapter 3. And the purpose of Matthew 3 is to introduce us to John the Baptist. You probably know who that is if you've read through your Bible a few times. And John's purpose was to introduce the Messiah. So we are introduced to John, and John is going to introduce us to Jesus the Messiah. As we're going to see in our text this morning, John is not just some random person that shows up on the scene, but he is coming in fulfillment of prophecy that had been made by Isaiah specifically some 700 years before Christ. And so we're going to make some connections back to Isaiah and back to uh, other prophets in the Old Testament to see the ministry of John as a preparatory ministry. He's coming not to draw focus to himself, but to draw focus to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And even so far in these first two chapters, we've seen him emphasize so clearly that Jesus is the Messiah. And so that's what we're going to see again today. John is over and over again telling his readers, this is him. This is the one that Elijah talked about, that Isaiah talked about. He comes to fulfill prophecy, and he comes to fulfill the word of God. And so if you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to take the whole chapter this morning, and so we will start in verse 1, and I invite you to follow along as we read. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> in those days... John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance." And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Now John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. 
And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, there is much to learn, there is much to observe in this text this morning, and so we come asking once again for your help, that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would open our eyes, that you would convict our hearts of sin. This this message that John is preaching and that Jesus preached is the same message we need to hear, that we would repent, we'd confess our sins and turn away from them and turn to the source of life, which is Christ. So Lord, as we see some details this morning about John and about his message and what the significance is of Jesus being baptized, Father, would you help us to understand, would you help us to see and hear, and in everything we do, would Jesus Christ be praised. It's in his name that I pray, amen. Well, I'm going to take this chapter in three sections, like I said, and it really is one narrative account, and so I'm breaking this up just to help us have some hooks to hang our hat on every now and then. So verses 1 through 6 tell us who John was, um, sort of a biographical sketch. Verses 7 to 12 show us what John's message was, the content of what he was out in the wilderness preaching, and then, of course, from 13 to the end, we will see the baptism of Jesus and talk about the significance of that. Well, we only have to read three words in the opening of the chapter before we have to stop and explain something here. If you remember when chapter 2 ended, Jesus is about three to five years old, somewhere in there. They had returned from Egypt when it was safe to do so, and Joseph and Mary and Jesus had settled around the region of Galilee. Now we know from reading Luke's gospel that when John the Baptist starts his ministry, Jesus is around 30 years old. Okay, we know this by who Luke talks about is in office, who's in power, how long they had been ruling at the time. So when Matthew says in chapter 3, in those days, how should we read that? He, he's not just moving from chapter 2 to chapter 3, there's 25 years or so that have passed between the close of chapter 2 and the start of chapter 3, or is he just speaking in past tense? Sometimes when we talk about something that's happened in the past, we would say, oh, back in those days, we'd so on and so forth. That, I don't think that's the case. This is not just throwaway phrasing. We have to remember that Matthew's primary audience here are Hebrew Jewish readers. And in the Jewish Old Testament... In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, 51 times the word in those days appears. Same words that Matthew opens his gospel with. And the majority of the time, that phrase is used to talk about either the coming of the Messiah or the consummation of all things. And so in the reading of these words, there is more than just, it's not a transitional phrase. It's not just introducing what's coming next. Matthew is trying to tell his readers that what was promised long ago, the coming of the Messiah, is here. This is not just some random place in time. It is those days. It is when God had promised that the Messiah was coming and the plan is about to unfold the fulfillment of God's promise has come. The Messiah has come. This has been Matthew's whole purpose 
in the book to prove out through evidence and witness that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of David and the Son of God. And now he does that, he argues this way by connecting John to the preparatory ministry that was talked about through the prophet Isaiah. So let's look a little bit at who John was in the first six verses. As we read, John was drawing crowds from all over the place, all over the region, gaining popularity with the people, but not just popularity in the sense of, you know, they liked him and wanted to be a part of it, but he was preaching a message that they had not heard for a while, a message of repentance, of coming to God, of repenting and confessing your sin. And he's called John the Baptist, which is an excellent name, by the way, because he instructed repentant sinners to receive this Right, this, this ceremonial-type cleansing. Now, it wasn't efficacious with John, meaning he wasn't preaching the message that if you are baptized, then you're right with God. There's a whole bunch of historical evidence that we won't go into. But he is preaching that those who have confessed their sins should be baptized as a depiction of the cleansing that has happened in their own soul. Now, the main thing that John preached was a message calling people to repent and turn to God, and what else do we read there? Because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Why do you think he uses the phrase kingdom of heaven? We're going to see this so often in this thing, but every word of the Bible has significance. Did you know that? Sometimes the word and can dramatically change the meaning of a verse. Every word is important. So why does John say the kingdom of heaven instead of just saying, well, the kingdom of God? I think, and many other people do too, that what the emphasis here is that the Messiah's reign is not just an earthly political reign. We've talked about this before, how many people in anticipating the coming of the Messiah thought that he would come in earthly power. They thought he was coming to overthrow the governments. And so then, if someone did that, they would come in the name of God. And say that God is empowering them to do this and to establish his kingdom. But that's not what it says. It says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I think when he says this, he means this is not merely a political rule. But that the kingdom of God and heaven is demonstrated in the fact that this is a spiritual kingdom. It's not just about overthrowing the Romans. It's not just about getting things established so the Jewish people can worship in the way that they wanted to. He is saying that this is a spiritual kingdom that is going to have transformative effect on the kingdoms of the world until all things are eventually brought under the feet of this anointed king. And you might hear in your mind things from Psalm 2, things from Psalm 110 saying that this Messiah figure is going to bring everything in subjection under him. And Matthew is saying, it's close, it's here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, it's come and it will come. The coming of Jesus, I think we should see as an inaugural event. In the coming of the Messiah, he brings all of the power and the authority and the dominion of the kingdom of heaven, and yet the kingdom comes in space and time. So here's what I mean. Rather than God just snapping his fingers 
and making everything right when the Messiah comes in some sort of miraculous transformative thing. He chooses in his wisdom to see the consummation of all things, the kingdom of heaven established progressively. That is, in time. So it's not just an instantaneous effect, but God works through means. And so when Matthew's saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he means that it is going to come. It is going to unfold, and God chooses to use things like the preaching of the gospel, missions, discipleship, evangelism. All of these things are meant to bring about the kingdom of heaven, which Matthew says and John says it's here. It's inaugurated. It's started. Therefore, John says, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Matthew, now under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, identifies John as the one the prophet Isaiah spoke of. And I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to tell you why this is so significant. So Isaiah chapter 40 is where he's quoting from here in Matthew 3. So listen to the first few verses. Isaiah chapter 40, I'm going to start in verse 3. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain or hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together because the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This citation is significant for many reasons. I'll share a couple with you. First, this identifies John as the one who is to prepare the way for the Messiah. So go back to the top of the chapter in chapter 3. So right after the quotation, verse 3, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. See that? Matthew is explicitly saying that John, this, this guy who's out preaching in the wilderness, this is the one spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. So when we read Isaiah and we read about this preparatory ministry, we know that once John is on the scene in fulfillment of Isaiah 40, the next thing is that Messiah comes. You tracking with me here? This is why it's significant. We cannot affirm John's role as preparing the way for the Messiah without affirming Jesus' role as the Messiah because John identifies Jesus as what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He identifies Jesus. Matthew identifies John. Isaiah prophesies the whole thing. Are you getting how that all fits together there? So this is so significant that Matthew goes back and connects John to this ministry that Isaiah talked about. The other thing that's significant is that by connecting John to Isaiah chapter 40, Matthew shows that John is a prophet speaking the word of God. Now, why is that significant? Well, this is what I wanted to explain earlier when I said John doesn't just come on the scene out of nowhere. It may have felt like that to the people because how long had it been since the people of God heard from God? Do you remember? 400 years. We talked about the, the intertestamental period when Malachi ends the canon, the t Old Testament. From that point to Matthew is 400 years of history. God hasn't spoken. Not in this way. So here comes John preaching a message of repentance seemingly out of nowhere and yet when we dial our lens back a little bit we can see that this is not random. This is not out of nowhere. John comes specifically to fulfill the prophecy that had been spoken 700 years earlier by the prophet Isaiah. 
So the significance of Matthew connecting these things is very big, is huge significance. The people of God had not heard from God for 400 years. And then here comes John, preparing the way for the Lord just like Isaiah said he would. Now maybe you've wondered why Matthew includes some details about John's wardrobe and his diet in his description of who he is. And these details have significance and meaning. I'll just share a couple of things before we move on in the text. But what Matthew wants to do, just like I said earlier, he wants to connect John's ministry to previous prophetic ministries so that the people understand what he's doing. And so by describing for his readers how John looked and what he ate, there would be a connection made to many of the Old Testament prophets in specific, I think Matthew has in here, the prophet Elijah. As we heard last Sunday when John preached about Elijah and the prophets of Baal, he was not afraid to call out wickedness, to challenge authority, to speak the word of God regardless of what might happen. And that is precisely what we see John doing in Matthew and in Luke and in the Synoptic Gospels. He is speaking the truth to the people of God with no regard for what might happen to him, just as the prophets of old did. And even down to the details of things, we read in 2 Kings 1 that Elijah, the prophet, wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. I mean, there's, just, there's, there's general comparisons and there are very specific comparisons so that Matthew's readers start to think, oh, okay, yeah, we, we've seen this before, we've, we've heard this before, this guy is from God. Now, this is why this is important. This is not just an interesting detail. But by connecting John to Elijah, it puts him in the vein of the prophets. Why is that a big deal? Because that means that what he speaks, he speaks authoritatively. Right? He is not just some random person who went out in the desert and had an experience and now he comes back and he's like, oh, you guys aren't going to believe what I saw. This is a prophet of God proclaiming the word of God to the people of God. So his authority comes not just because he knows stuff, but because he is the promised preparer for the way of the Lord, standing in the office of the prophet of God. As far as his diet goes, I won't bore you with the details, but I'll just say one thing, that locusts in the Old Testament are a sign of judgment from God. Do you remember this? You can read about this, some of the places, Exodus 10, Deuteronomy 28, Joel 1 and 2. The, the locusts are destroyers. They're, they're a judgment from God. Well, likewise, the message that John the Baptist is bringing is, unless you repent, you're going to be judged. That's what all the language that we're going to see in a minute about laying the axe to the root and the branches being pulled off and burned. That is judgment language. And so by telling us that he ate locusts, it's not just a detail that goes, ugh, that's gross. It's to remind us that he is the messenger of God saying, repent, confess your sins, or this is what's going to happen. So these details are included to help us understand more the complete picture, not only of who John is, but what his purpose is in delivering these messages to God's people. Now this brings us to the next section of text. Let's look at verses 7 through 12. And we'll look at some of the content of John's message. I'm not sure that John would be real well received if he came and preached here. A little bit rough around the edges. I think we would 
define his style as shock value, kind of hard hitting, doesn't pull any punches. Uh, but standing in the office of the prophet of God, he delivers the truth with striking clarity, which is exactly what the people needed to hear. Now, at this point in redemptive history, the people had heard the same message that John is preaching probably thousands of times, right? What's the main message here? It is a call to confession and repentance. And by the way, this is the same message that you and I need to hear. It's the same thing that God is calling us to right now. This is not some antiquated, historical, oh, that's nice kind of a thing. We're going to touch on this later. Both John the Baptist and Jesus taught that repentance is the necessary prerequisite to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is going to say this in a couple chapters. John is saying it right here. And you say, okay, well, what do they mean by repentance? What is that? Grant Osborne, one of the commentators that I read, in commenting on this text, says this. Until the sinner turn from self and sin to God, there can be no forgiveness. Moreover, true repentance involves, so here's the definition, a total change that affects not just the mind, but the heart, and is demonstrated or made visible in a new lifestyle and character. So you're picking up on what he's saying about repentance. It's not just saying, okay, I repent, and then continuing to act the same way. That it involves a total being transformation. Mind, heart, body, attitude, intentions, motivations, all of it are wrapped up in this idea of repentance. This is what God has been calling his people to since sin entered the world. You understand that? All of his laws, all of his commands, all of his covenants, the, the primary work of the prophetic ministry that existed in the old covenant have been designed to bring God's people back to him so that they can dwell in his presence, so that sin would be taken care of. And we see this all leading up to the person and the work of Jesus Christ who is going to offer once for all a sacrifice that will make it possible for God's people to actually be in his presence. I want you to notice something in this text too, in 7 to 12. John doesn't show any partiality, <laughs> does he? He does not mince his words. He doesn't tone it down when the religious leaders come on the scene. In fact, I think we could probably argue that he intensifies his message when they come on here. Let's pick up in verse 7. I want to read this section again, at least a couple of verses. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So here's the situation. John's out in the wilderness, Judea, by the Jordan River. He's preaching to the people a message of repentance and confession, according to verses 2 and verse 6. And the religious leaders come out, they want to see what's going on. We read in here that people were coming from all over. This was not some small little quaint baptism service. This is thousands of people. And so the leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're going, what in the world is going on? So they come out to see what the spectacle is. They come out to see what John is doing. And when they get there, you can just imagine this. So imagine we're like in a, in a service like this. And, and somebody kind of sneaks in the back trying to not be noticed. And all of a sudden I'm like, what are you doing here? 
Wouldn't that be awkward? Wouldn't that be kind of an, an interesting situation? That's exactly what John does. He says, what are you doing here? Who warned you to flee the wrath? And now that's a rhetorical question. He, he is not waiting for the Pharisees to say, it was the silk merchant at the market. He warned us to flee the wrath to come. That's not what John is after. The Pharisees demonstrate no sign of repentance. They are not interested in that. And so basically John is saying, what are you even doing here? I'm here preaching a message of repentance, forgiveness of sin, confession. Come, come, come. You have no interest in that. What are you doing here? It's striking how clear he is. You see that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had two main reasons that they thought it was unnecessary to repent. They had no interest in this for two things. First, they were religious. They were religious. Not some camel-haired, locust-eating fruitcake in the desert. What is he doing? We're the religious ones. We're the ones who teach the law. We're the ones who set the standard. We keep the rules. We don't need to repent. We're the leaders. That kind of arrogance was so evident in all of the interactions we're going to see with them and John and Jesus. The second reason that it seemed unnecessary for them to repent can be seen in verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. John says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, Well, we have Abraham as our father. See, they were standing on their pedigree, their lineage, falsely believing that because they were descendants of Abraham, they were Jews, they were exempt from repentance. We're good. We're God's chosen people. We don't need to repent. But John won't let it stand. And he declares to them that God has the power to raise up children for himself from anywhere, and he intensifies his point by using an inanimate object for an example. Can you imagine how offensive this would be? They are literally wearing their lineage as a point of pride. We are Abraham's children. And John's like, you see that rock that literally can't do anything? God could raise up children from that. How do you think that landed on these guys? Not well. Not well at all. In fact, we're going to see as we get further into Matthew that this kind of direct truth speaking eventually got John killed. You see, the only way into the kingdom of heaven is through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus. That's it. It does not matter where you were born, it does not matter if you are a Jew or an American, or if you prayed a prayer when you were five and forgot about it since then, the only way, the only way into the kingdom is repentance and trusting in Jesus. And that is the message that John is giving. This is just another example when, when John says about the stones and the raising up children, this is reinforcing what we said earlier is the Gentile mission theme that is included in Matthew's gospel. Yes, he is writing to the Jewish people, but he is writing to them to convince them that Jesus is the universal Messiah for all people. We see this in the Great Commission. We see this in the fact that there are Gentiles in Jesus' own lineage. And we see it in things like this, where the focus is being taken off of ethnic or tribal Israel and being put on the global effect of the gospel of Jesus Christ that will be preached to all nations and all peoples. In verses 11 to 12, 
John shows how the ministry of this coming Messiah is going to be greater than his own. And he uses the imagery of baptism to illustrate this. I think this is really good. And he says in verse 11 that when the Messiah comes, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now you can imagine there's several interpretations of this. And this is, as I'm preparing to preach, like we're, we're not going to cover everything in chapter 3 today. There's a lot of stuff we could, but what I try to do is focus in on when you read the text, what's going to trip you up? As you're reading through your Bible, what are going to be things that are kind of more difficult? Some of this is understandable, some of it is not, and I prayerfully consider what would be helpful. So I just want to talk for just a minute about what he means here by Jesus or the Messiah baptizing with the Holy Spirit and fire, and there's three main interpretations. I'm going to share all three with you, and then I'll tell you where I land on this too. Uh, many people see this as a look forward to the day of Pentecost. That's another place where we have both the Holy Spirit and fire. Remember from Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is the pouring out of the Spirit on the church, right? And the Holy Spirit comes, and it's made visible by tongues of fire on top of their heads. We have the Spirit and the fire there. Some people in looking at the grammatical structure of this sentence, see this as something called a hendiadis, and I'll explain what this is, but it's because there's only one preposition for Holy Spirit and fire, so they would render the phrase, he will baptize you with spirit fire. The power of the spirit, it's like fire. Okay, that's, that's another way to interpret this. And other people see these two things, the baptism of the spirit and fire as being antithetical or opposite or different. With the Holy Spirit coming upon those who repent and put their faith in Jesus and fire being the judgment for unbelief. All of those have merit. You could, you could, you could defend each one of those from the text. But in the context of the chapter, I tend to agree more with that third interpretation. And here's why. Two times already, Matthew has talked about fire in terms of judgment, right? With the, with the branches being burned because they didn't bear fruit, with the separation of the wheat and the chaff, so the chaff is going to get burned. This is judgment. So it seems unlikely that he would use the word in the same paragraph in a radically different way. So I take this to mean that the Holy Spirit is, I mean, we could say, the reward of, the gift of, anything like that, the one who repents and confesses their sin and puts their faith in Jesus, while those who reject the gospel and reject Christ will experience the judgment of God, here illustrated by this fire. So as far as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what is that talking about? I think we need to see this as being synonymous with or the same as conversion. Okay, now there's, there's fine points and we can argue this afterwards if you want to, but I think the baptism of the Holy Spirit is what happens at conversion. The testimony of the New Testament is clear that when a person is saved, in other words, when they repent and confess their sin and receive Jesus, that the Holy Spirit irrevocably indwells them. That is, he cannot be taken away. It is the pouring out of, the filling with, the indwelling of the Spirit, the moment of conversion. One way to illustrate this is by using language of baptism. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not some kind of 
extra special event that happens years after you've been saved for some kind of higher, more special Christianity. You're really in tune with God, so you're going to get the baptism of the Spirit. That's a lie. It's not supported by the Scriptures. The indwelling of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, is what enables the Christian for work of service. It's what enables our obedience. It's what seals us. Remember this from Ephesians 1. Paul says, I think it's 1.13. And you, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Hear, believed, sealed. That's what he's talking about. So John's baptizing with water to signify that they have repented from sin, they've been cleansed. Jesus, the Messiah, when he comes, will baptize, will fill, will wash with his own spirit. And we see this as we read through the rest of the Gospels, we read Acts, and we read the epistles of the apostles. Now we've made a pretty big deal out of the content of John's message, right? Being that of repentance, confession of sin, baptizing people as a sign that they have repented. So maybe we're wondering, why did Jesus need to be baptized? Let's move into our last section, verses 13 to 17. Jesus had no sin to confess. He was sinless. He didn't have any guilt. He needed no washing in the waters of baptism. So what's he doing? Why does he come to John to be baptized by him in a very public display? Well, I think we need to connect this to the reality that everything Jesus does in his life in his active obedience, every moment that he is here on earth, he is fulfilling some part of the law of God. Everything he does is fulfilling something. Everything. We're going to talk about this in great detail when we get into chapter 5. But Jesus here is not concerned with cleansing, and he does not come confessing sin. But what he is doing in addition to setting an example for us. I think that's a big part of it. I think that Jesus is setting the example that he's not commanding us to do something he's not willing to do. Okay, so that's part of it. But I think what he is doing is exactly what it says. You read through the text. John starts to argue with Jesus. He says, oh, well, wait a minute. I, I should be baptized by you as if John the Baptist knows better than the Messiah. But Jesus tells him that it's necessary for them to do this why? To fulfill all righteousness. All righteousness. There is not a single area of the righteousness that God requires of his people that Jesus did not fulfill. Do you know that? Everything. Every promise of God. Every prophecy that was made. Every covenant God ever made with his people are fulfilled in Jesus. And so by Jesus coming to be baptized by John, he is showing that he fulfills all of the ceremonial cleansing type laws that were given under the old covenant. He fulfills them. He is being symbolically cleansed. He is fulfilling that part of the law so that 2,000 years later, when you confess your sin and you receive the righteousness of Jesus, it is a complete righteousness. There is nothing missing in what God gives you in Christ. Did you know that? Every single thing that you need to be pleasing to God is kept in Jesus. 
And his baptism illustrates that. He does not go around any area of God's law, but he fulfills it all. So that his people can have a complete and perfect Savior. It's amazing. So John agrees. He baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River. And here we see, for the first time in the New Testament, the explicit mention of the triune God. The heavens are opened. The Holy Spirit descends upon the Son of God as the Father declares his love for the Son. We have Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's one more thing that I want to point out to this before we move to close. This has to do with the confirming work of the Holy Spirit in this text. In these last few verses of the chapter, notice that the Spirit falls on or comes down to rest on Jesus. Do you remember, what does the word Messiah mean? Do you remember that from going through this earlier? It means anointed one. Savior. One who is approved by God, anointed for this ministry, and by the Holy Spirit coming down and resting on Jesus, he is, in a sense, anointing Jesus for this work. He's empowering him for this work. And I'm not just pulling this out of thin air, but I'm saying that this coming down of the Spirit and resting on Jesus is the authentication of Jesus' messiahship. And we see this promised all over the Old Testament in many different ways. In fact, we read one of the texts this morning where it talks about this, but I want to read just a couple of verses from Isaiah's gospel that tell us that this is indeed what's going to happen. Isaiah chapter 11. You don't have to go there. Just listen. Verses 1 and 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots that shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Rest upon him. Where have we heard that? Well, verse 16. And he saw the spirit of God descending down like a dove and coming to rest on him. This is the Messiah. This is the promised anointed one. Or what we read this morning from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He is the Messiah. And this is Matthew's point, is telling his readers that Jesus has come to fulfill all of the promises of God, that he is the anointed one. So the baptism of Jesus is a clear Trinitarian affirmation of Jesus' messianic ministry. That's a mouthful, but you get what I'm saying? That all three members of the Trinity are there, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and it is all in language of affirmation and approval. So that as Jesus starts his ministry, we're going to see this next week, as he goes into the desert and does battle with Satan, there is no chance of his failing because he is the anointed Messiah, the one that God has set his approval on. He is the son of David, the rightful heir to the throne, and he accomplishes all righteousness. Okay. We've covered a lot of ground. I want to just summarize the whole chapter and then I'm going to leave us with a word of exhortation as we come to the table this morning. We saw that by Matthew connecting John 
back to the prophecies in Isaiah that his coming on the scene is not accidental. This is not a coincidence that John comes and does this ministry. He comes fulfilling prophecy for a very specific task of preparing the way of the Lord, the Messiah. And standing in the office of the prophet of God, he speaks truth so that when he affirms Jesus as the long-awaited, long-foretold Messiah, we can trust and they can trust that it's true because he is speaking on behalf of God. He is faithful in his office. John the Baptist is not beholden to the religious leaders and the heavyweights of his day, but he speaks the truth and exhorts them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He's faithful in his calling to baptize Jesus so that Jesus fulfills all righteousness and so that you and I and everyone else who has ever put their faith in Christ has a complete and perfect salvation. Nothing missing in our salvation. Jesus accomplished it all. So in light of chapter 3, here's my exhortation to us this morning. We need more people like John the Baptist. And I don't just mean Baptists, although we do need more Baptists. But I mean, we need more people who are willing to speak the truth. We need more people who are less concerned with their reputation, with what people think of them, and more concerned with the truth of the Bible. We need more of us in this room. This is not a broad generalization. I'm speaking to you and to me. We need more people who are willing to know the word of God, to speak what it says, let the chips fall. John had no regard for what the consequences or the result to his life would be. He calls out Herod, we're going to see in Matthew chapter 11, he chops his head off for it. We need more people like that. We need more of us who are willing to boldly and faithfully and indiscriminately preach the gospel of Christ. Now, you might not be a pastor. You might not be a preacher. You might not feel bold in your faith. You're saying, I'm not that outgoing. None of that matters, brothers and sisters. God has uniquely placed you in the situation you are in and your responsibility is not to bemoan the fact that you're not like that person or I don't have the confidence of that person. Your job is to be faithful to God. Open your mouth. Declare the word of God to those around you without fear. God will preserve you. He'll preserve me. He is faithful. All that he has promised is fulfilled in Christ. So Grace Bible Church, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. His is the righteousness that we need. His is the righteousness that we possess by faith. And I just got to encourage us all. I can do better in this. You can do better in this. And this is not just some sort of kind of, you know, pull up your bootstraps. Just be like John. But you understand what I'm saying. I think he sets us a great example by calling people to repent, to confess, and to come to Jesus because he's our only hope. Let's pray together. Father, we do all need a greater level of boldness in this area. It's so easy sometimes to just ignore an opportunity, keep our mouth shut. We don't want to ruffle feathers. and It's not a real popular opinion at our job or in our family as we gather together. And 
Sometimes it's just easier to keep your mouth shut. I'm so glad that John didn't think that way. I'm so glad that he opened his mouth and was obedient to you and proclaimed the word of God and that he fulfilled the righteousness with Jesus that was necessary. And Father, would you give us strength by your spirit to to follow in his footsteps, to, to imitate his example and to pray to you for more boldness. We know that the kingdom is expanded not by military might and hostile takeovers, but by the preaching of the gospel, by the sacrificial living out of what you have commanded us to do. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us strength to do this in all of our different areas of responsibility. And there's such a diversity of that in this room, and I just thank you for that. And I pray that in all these areas, Lord, whether we stay home and care for our kids or we work outside of the home or we don't have kids or we have no spouse or anything else, but we are employed or not employed, whatever the case, Lord, you have called us to faithfulness. And so would you enable us by your spirit now to be bold in preaching the gospel, to do it with patience, to do it with gentleness, but may we never back down from speaking the truth of your word. So God, help us. Help us to do this. And we ask this humbly in the name of Jesus. Amen.